Morning, church. Paper's falling on me. It's good to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. will be verse 28 and following. Let's pray. Great and good, Heavenly Father, we... We thank you for the the privilege to be able to gather together freely, to praise your name in song, to worship you in study, to dwell on your word, and to be changed and transformed by the power of your spirit within us. Lord, we pray that as we Look again at parables that were told by your son on this earth. That our hearts would be softened, our necks would be softened, our ears would be open, and our eyes would be open. That we would hear the truth that you would have us hear. We praise you for your son Jesus for the once-for-all sacrifice that he gave for each of us. We pray this in his precious name. Like I said, turn to Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 this morning. This is the Easter season. We're still in the Easter season. You follow a liturgical calendar. Easter is actually seven weeks long, seven Sundays, 50 days goes from Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, all the way until Ascension Day uh, to kind of follow the pattern that we see in, in, the, in the Scriptures, the, the, the literal events that happen in the Scriptures. What we've been doing over the course of Easter is, is we've been looking at some of these parables that Jesus has been telling or has been telling during his earthly ministry, and we're looking, we're looking really more at the the grace of God, what God has given to us that we don't rightfully deserve. Whereas during Lent, leading up to Easter, we were looking at what we were not receiving, namely the punishment that we rightfully deserve because of our sinfulness and how we're grateful because we have been saved from our sinfulness. Today we're going to look at three parables. What we've been doing is we've been... We've been Reading up to the twist, the thing that makes the crowds murmur that I've been talking about. Getting the context and then, and then hearing what the, the twist is that really is going to drive the point home. Today, because we're going to be looking at three of them, what we're going to do is we're going to treat kind of that first, first one the same way. And then we're going to use that thing that's being taught there as the template as we go through the second two. And we'll go through the second two much faster than the first one. So whenever I'm almost out of time and I haven't quite gotten to the second and third one, don't don't worry, it's not going to be a three-hour sermon. What's that? Or it might be. Let's be real. One of the things that we we see we saw in, in the Revelation song that we just sang, which by the way, just to clue you in, that's actually from the book of Revelation. Uh, one of the things that we see is this it's let's call it a Hebrewism. Uh, when, when 
when a Jewish person wants to emphasize something, they, they say it twice. They repeat themselves. But when they want to drive the point home, they say it three times. This is why in Revelation, the angels are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, or my, the Lord God Almighty. Or worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This thrice repeated truth of God. To drive the point home that God is in fact holy and God is in fact worthy. And that's what Jesus is going to do today. He's going to tell three parables. And in telling these three parables, he's really telling the same truth all three times. But he's telling it to us in three different ways so that we can really get this point driven home. I want to say a few things again to start us off here. Reminding us how we should approach the the parables in the gospel. Again, there's one main point. At least this is how we're to this is how I've been approaching them. And I think I think these three these three parables together really emphasize this. There's one main point that we're supposed to glean from the parables. Now, one of the things that Jesus does different, and, and, and this is a clarification point that I haven't said over the last couple of weeks. One of the things that Jesus does different than everybody else that are that is around him, that are teachers that are also using parables, is Jesus uses that twist to really drive his point home. Whereas whereas the other rabbis, what they're actually doing is they're using a parable to, to tell a truth in a memorable way. Right? They're gonna tell you a they're gonna tell you a story that's gonna help you help you remember what's going on in the teaching, help you apply it, right? And Jesus is doing that, but he is he's adding this extra feature, this this twist, this shock. Now, we also have to say that some of the shocks are bigger than others. Last week, when Jesus says you got a, a debt of, of 10,000 talents or $22 trillion is the number I use, that's a big shock whenever he says it's completely forgiven. But if we look at, say, the, the parable of the lost sheep, you got 100 sheep, one goes missing, the shepherd goes and he finds that, he leaves the 99, he finds that. That's not normal behavior, by the way. That's not like, oh yeah, of course he would go and see it. No, that's that's strange, because what about the 99? What if they wander off? Now you've lost 100 sheep instead of just one. Yeah, it's sad that you lost that one sheep, right? So it's, it's shocking, but it's not nearly as big of a shock. Same thing is kind of true here. It's, it's not really that big of a shock, but, but, it, but it is at the same time. Especially as we get it hammered to us three times. Matthew 28, or 21, excuse me, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first son and said, Son, go to work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not go. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Now, we've got to stop there in the middle of that verse because the twist comes in the second part of verse 31. But here's the stage that's being set. It's a man with a vineyard. By the way, if you, if you haven't quite caught on, let me point it out. Vineyards, again, are a common 
theme in Jesus' parables because it represents Israel, it represents prosperity and God's blessing. And so Jesus uses this, this picture analogy uh, all the time. He's got two sons. The first he says, go. The second he says, go. The first says, uh, I'm not going to go, but decides to go. And the second says, well, I won't. I, I will go, but doesn't. And Jesus asks this very simple question. Who did the thing that the father wanted? And the answer is simple, right? The answer is completely and totally obvious. Obviously, the first son who said, I won't go, but actually went and did the thing. Because the action is more important than just saying. It's very nice to, to, to give lip service to something, but that does it really matter if you're not willing to do it? Now, again, Jesus gives this scenario that's very, un, that's very odd. It's not, it's not shocking yet, but it's very odd. Really, for the son to say, no, I'm not going to go, is not, it's not normal. It's, it's really not even his right to say no. He's, he's subservient to his father in this situation. So it's, it's kind of this unusual situation. Ears are perked up. did the will of the Father. The first did. The first did. Now, who is Jesus talking to? We've we got to get some context here, right? Who is Jesus talking to? Well, if you go back in the story just a, just a little bit, you see you see at the beginning of chapter 21, I'm not, there's no verses that we're going to look at here. We see at the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 21, we see Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem the week of Passover. It's Holy Week. Jesus is about to go to the cross to suffer and to die. He goes, the next morning, he goes into the temple. And he does something that only a person who possesses authority can do. He goes in and he overturns the tables and he casts out these people who are exchanging money. And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. This isn't just something that, that any old Joe Schmo can go in and do. This is, this is something that a person who, who has the right to command other people can do. And so naturally, these religious leaders who really don't like Jesus to begin with, what is their response? Well, their response is to challenge Jesus' authority. Who gave you this authority? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they got their authority because they're, they're relatively smart people and they know the stories in the Bible and they know what, what it means to, to not harvest your whole field. You need to give X percent if it's this crop and this crop is this percent and they got it all figured out, don't they? Right? They got it all figured out. And that's why they have authority. And they so, so they look to Jesus. You've not gone through this process like we have. How do you have authority? Jesus, in very typical Jesus fashion, he says, I'm not going to answer you because you can't answer a very simple question. I like that about Jesus. And then he proceeds to answer it by parables. So he's asking these people, these Pharisees, religious leaders, which of these two sons did the will of the Father? And they said the first. Now, I don't think it's accidental that Jesus put these guys first. This first son first. Because he goes on, and, he, and here's the twist. Ready for it? He goes on. It says, Jesus said to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at this. I say to you, the tax collectors 
and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Pharisees and Sadducees, these people who are, who are the religious elite, they know their Bibles. They go to church every week. They, they do good things. They tithe. They tithe probably 25%. They're giving to the poor. They're helping the, they're helping, helping the orphans and the widows. They're doing good things, right? They're, they're. Look at us. Look at what we have accomplished. Look at how righteous we are. And Jesus turns to them and he says, listen. I tell you, you're right. You're exactly right. The first people will go in. The first son will go to the kingdom of God. Because it's the first people who recognize their sinful nature and have changed the way they're acting. Whereas you see that you are good and are really not. He goes on in verse 32. It says, for John came to you, John, John, by the way, the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. You Pharisees and religious leaders did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, John the Baptist is one of Jesus' relatives, and, and he was sent by God. His mother Elizabeth has told this, and his, his father is told that he was sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord. And so John, he's this—he's an odd—he's an odd character. He's eating locusts and honey, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's he's by the Jordan, and he's baptizing people, and he has this message. What is John's message? John's message is repent and have faith in Jesus. Now, you have to look at the whole thing that John is doing here to, in order to get this whole thing. But, but his message is repent and believe in Jesus. What is repentance? See, a lot of times we think that repentance is a, is a work that we're accomplishing and balancing the scales. For every sin I commit, if I say I'm sorry, I've righted the scale. This is how we think often. This is not what biblical repentance is. It's not, it wasn't biblical repentance in the Old Testament, and it's certainly not biblical repentance in the New Testament. Repentance is whenever we're going towards sin, recognize that we're going towards sin, and turn away from that sin, not, not to not sin anymore, but to place all of our trust in a god who saves. Now I say it that way so that we don't so we don't think that this is only a message of the New Testament. The law shows us our sinfulness in our desperate need for a God to forgive us. And when the people of Israel came to make sacrifices, they weren't making a sacrifice that 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 God must respond to. It was something that God gave them. Here, do this thing to represent the fact that I am forgiving you because you have turned from your sinful nature into my arms. Now, hear me. Repentance is not about not sinning anymore. But when you repent, sin is diminished. 
When you turn from your sinful ways and cast yourselves upon a God who saves, you will inevitably stop sinning. But it goes further than this into the New Testament. And this is what John then says when Jesus comes to be to be baptized. Jesus sees or John sees Jesus come and he says, behold, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. Everybody in the everybody around John at this point would have immediately gone to the Day of Atonement when 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 the people of Israel would gather together and they would see a, a lamb being slaughtered for the sins of the people. Behold, the Lamb of God, the, the means of salvation, John says. Take, turn away from your sinfulness and cast yourselves upon the Lamb that was slain. Because it's in Him. It's in Him that we have salvation. See, what the people of Israel were doing, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what they were, what they were doing, what they were misunderstanding about, about what the law was. It was, about, it was about me becoming a righteous person, but that's not what the law is. It's about God and His righteousness being bestowed upon me, a sinner. And so Jesus can, can look at these, these Pharisees and these Sadducees and the religious leaders and He says, look, you, you don't get it because you're saying to God, yes, I'll serve you, but then you're not. Yeah, from time to time, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were doing good things, but they were doing them in their own name. They were doing them in their own power. They were doing them to save themselves. And God says, no. And this is what the tax collectors and the prostitutes got, right? Hear me on this. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're sinners. They're, they're blatant and obvious sinners. See, what we do is we lie to ourselves. John tells us in 1 John, if you, if you say there's no, there's no sin in you, that you're lying. And the truth doesn't dwell. You are a sinner. But, but Jesus, in His righteousness, has been offered freely to you. Cast yourself upon it. That's great, isn't it? In fact, that's so good. But in case we miss it, in case we miss it, let's go on. Here another parable. Here another parable, Jesus says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. There's the vineyard again. And he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Normal, natural behavior. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. It's no longer normal behavior. But by the way, we're not to the twisting. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Somebody explain to me that logic. Let's kill the son and we'll get all his stuff. The father will just say, sure, you can have it. Of course not. This is about something a little bit more though, isn't it? There's something a little bit deeper. We recognize that there is a disconnect. There's a disconnect here. And Jesus is trying to, trying to illustrate for us that there is a disconnect between how the Pharisees and the religious leaders were trying to live on their own righteousness. It simply does not make sense. Because it's only by God's righteousness that we are saved and redeemed. And they took him and they threw him out in the, out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants, to those tenants? He's asking the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And they get it. And they say to him, he will put those, wit, those wretches to a miserable death. Of course he will. And let out the vineyard into the other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in in our eyes. That doesn't seem to fit with what he's talking about. This reveals to us another little thing about Jesus in the parables that that other people who use parables don't really do. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 4 when he tells the parable of the sower in the many soils, he tells us when he's explaining that parable to, the, to, the, to his disciples that, that some of the things that are in the parables are hidden because they can't be fully realized or recognized until a later point. When we heard about, about the, the owner of the field sending his son, I hope most of us at least thought about Jesus in the back of our minds, the son of the father, right? He came to this earth. And what's going to happen to him in just a few short days? He's going to suffer and he's going to die on the cross. And the religious leaders, what are they saying? We're going to earn God's favor by by killing this false teacher. He's going to give us our inheritance because we killed him. How wrong could they be? And Jesus explains it. He says, listen, the stone that the builders rejected, he's the stone. It became the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone laid. It's not the, the capstone. Sometimes we read capstone. It's, it's not the capstone. It's the cornerstone. It's the first, it's the first stone laid. It's the one that has to be perfect. It's got, a, it's got a perfect 90 degree edge. And you put that in the corner and you build from there because that's what makes your house square and stable and, and, and good. Jesus is what makes us square and stable and good, right? We get that, right? But the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they said, they said no, it's about my righteousness. It's about my goodness. It's about what I'm doing. Jesus doesn't fit with this. Somebody who's going to say, come and, and sacrifice himself for me. Hogwash. I'm going to be good. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. At this point, it's really hard to argue that Jesus is not talking directly to the Pharisees and the Religious leader says, and given to the to a people producing its fruit. By the way, the tax collectors and sinners. 
that cast themselves upon the work of upon the work of Christ, and they are now the ones producing fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, you know what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did? They fell on the stone and they put him on the cross and it destroyed them. You know what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus returns? He's going to come on a white horse with a, with a robe dipped in blood and a sword coming out of his mouth and fire in his eyes. And he is going to enact vengeance. The stone will fall. And the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees heard this parable. They perceived that he was speaking about them. It doesn't take much, right? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowd because they held him to be a prophet. Then he tells this third time. He wants to drive this point home. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, the, to a kingdom may be compared to a king a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and, and and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come again he sent he sent other servants saying tell those tell those who are invited see I have prepared my dinner my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready come to the wedding feast they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And while, they, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. There it is again. These people who are saying, I will go into the fields and don't. But it's not just that they're not going into the fields. They're killing the servants of God. What is happening? And of course, the king was very angry. And, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants, <clears throat> those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Both bad and good. So the wedding, the wedding hall was filled with guests. We're the tax collectors and the prostitutes. We're the second tenants who will receive the field and who will give the owner its fruit. And we are also those who are bad and good who have been invited into the wedding feast. Praise the Lord. But there's something else. Sometimes it annoys me that Jesus keeps talking. Not really. He goes on. And this is challenging. This is hard. But you have, we have to hear this in order to rightfully understand what's going on. It says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now, what's a wedding garment? Now, in the ancient world, if you were part of the, the 80% who were, who were dirt poor, you worked that day probably to earn enough money to buy food for that day, right? And there's, there's, there's still a fluctuation, but basically you're dirt poor. The people on the very bottom, they have one 
outer garment. That's all they own. Cloth is expensive. People who are maybe on the top, they maybe have had enough to scrape by enough to have a nice second garment that they don't wear. They only wear to parties. And just so we're clear, when, when you're invited to a party in the ancient world, you go. These people who aren't going to the party earlier on the third, that's it's absurdity. See, we eat, we eat so much that we we have the biggest parties that would have ever taken place in the ancient world every single day, every single day of our life. We eat three times a day. Even if you're even if you're the poorest person in this room, you're still the wealthiest person in this time. I hope you recognize this. So there's no way these people are going, nah, I don't want to go. I don't want to go and be fed heartily for, for a week. So you have this, this wedding garment. And, and the king finds this man who has no wedding garment. Why doesn't he have a wedding garment? When you go to a wedding, you dress up. Because it's a special occasion. Did you know that's why we that's why you dress up when you go to a wedding? When you're invited to a wedding, did you know that you're not just invited to the to the ceremony, but you're also invited into the wedding, into the marriage? When you see a couple who are struggling, you're supposed to come alongside them and help them. We've lost that in our culture, right? Nobody, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But we dress up to go, look, I care enough about you and enough about this marriage that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show off a little bit. That's what they did. Thank you for inviting me to this wedding. I'm so happy. This guy doesn't have a wedding piece, a wedding garment. And he, the king, said to, said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. That place, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why doesn't he have a wedding garment? Was he maybe one of the non-elect people who wants to be saved by Jesus? No. It's not. See, because, because what's happening here is that every person in the street was invited. We get that? Go out into the main roads and, and invite as many as you find. Nobody's just happening, wandering in. What this guy did is he heard the invitation. He said, okay, I'll just go in. I'll go in as I am. What wedding garment are you wearing? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're wearing their own, they're, they're wearing their own wedding garment. The Romans were told to put on Christ. He was offered to us as our wedding. Augustine, he talks about how he believes that, that when, when these guests were offered to come to this party, they were given wedding garments. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that it's in there, but I get it. I get why he thinks that. Because we're, we're called into this, into this feast, but we're not called to be ourselves. We're called to put on a different righteousness. And it's not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like, oh, put on a different garment. Clean yourselves up. And when you clean yourselves up, then you can come in. 
what Jesus says to us is he says, no, put on me. I am your righteousness. I'm going to steal something. Just blatantly rob it from this, this man, Rico Tice. Wes and I went to this conference this past week, and he, he spoke, and he was talking about he was talking about our sinfulness. And he said, he said in, this, in this book, this isn't his book. I didn't actually steal his book. He said, in this book are all my sins. Every sin I've ever committed. Because in God's eyes, He no longer looks at me and my sinfulness. He looks at His Son Jesus in His pure righteousness. Loved ones of God, put on the garment of Christ. Father, we have in ourselves nothing to offer you except for your son, Jesus. As we read the scriptures, we find again and again and again that your son, Jesus, is the only thing sufficient to bring us into your arms. Lord, we have no other response than praise and adoration. Teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, that our response should be childlike. That all we want to do is to love you.